0: Containers are just lightweight virtual machines, right? No, not really. There's much more to the story than that. So we decided to do a four-part series on virtual machines versus containers. In parts one and two, we discussed virtual machines in detail and how they work. Now in parts three and four, we turn our attention to containers. Turns out containers are not very complicated. They're just normal Linux processes with some isolation superpowers. In today's episode of MobiCast, John and Chris go into depth on containers, their history, and the underlying operating system technologies that make them possible. If you ever wondered why you can't run Windows containers on a Linux host, this episode will clear up the mystery. Welcome to MobiCast, a show about the techniques and technologies used by the best cloud-native software teams. Each week, your hosts, John Christensen and Chris Hickman, pick a software concept and dive deep to figure it out.
1: Welcome, Chris. It's another episode of MobyCast. Hey, John. It's good to be back. Yeah, good to have you back. Chris, what have you been up to lately, this week?
2: Yeah, this is a big week. Um, We are sending my oldest son off to college. So uh, it's it's a time I think that's that's come, but it's going to be a huge adjustment um, for us. So we've just been preparing, um, getting him all packed up, and all the checking off stuff from supplies list, and trying to think of what he might might need, and and then we'll be we'll be off and making the trek to to take him to to college. Right on. When do you think you're going to see him again next weekend? <laughs> um, yeah, we'll we'll see. <laughs> the good the good the good news here is that his, his college is only about an hour and a half away from us so it's a nice drive and, right uh, right yeah that's what i was thinking i think parents cool. week, parents weekends about a month away so that will definitely be no later than that and we'll it's it'll really be up to him i think whether or not we see him before then so uh, i can't imagine i
1: mean i have a, about another 10 years or so before i have to face that and it'll be yeah i just don't even know what your what your life looks like here but uh Best of luck, and uh, yeah, next next phase with with one kid at
2: home and one kid out. Yeah, life life is a sequence of transitions and journeys mm-hmm. and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yep, yep, yeah. I guess uh, here I've,
1: I don't have such a big week happening. I went. I think last week I mentioned I was going to go surf in Baja, and that was going to be fun, and I did. Um, and now I'm back and refreshed. And I, I imagine Chris, you can hear it in my voice. It's a it's it's a little
2: salty. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah that that surfer vibe of just like chill. Mm-hmm. I just you know
1: for me surfing for whatever reason is it, it is like you think of it as like this ah oh, free flowing natural you know out there one with the ocean but really it's just like the hardest thing I've ever tried to learn how to do. It is just so difficult and like every little piece of progress is hard fought and a big part of the reason it's hard fought is because you only get a few seconds on a wave and and then you maybe only get you know 10 15 waves in an hour or two of surfing so it's like you get a total of maybe 45 seconds to a minute of actual practice every time you go that's not a lot compared
2: to other sports that's not an efficient that's not an efficient ratio
1: no, no. Yeah. So it's, it's just like, I, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of like a bulldog when I, when I decide I want to learn something, I just get on it and get on it and get on it until I figure it out. And here we are like 15 years later after I've started surfing or maybe even more than that. And, you know, there are still some fundamental things that I just wish I could do better. And finally, I had just such a breakthrough this past weekend. And I, and I got one move, um, just dialed in better than I ever had before. And it was just there for me whenever I wanted it and it was like I was like I think I should just quit (laughs) I think I just I just got as good as I'll ever get (laughs) that's it right there mission accomplished right this software is a little bit the same way um you know we have to learn and learn and learn and learn and you never you never kind of get to that point where you're like okay I'm done learning I'm as good as I'm ever going to get like there's always more you can always get better indeed so absolutely let's (laughs) <laughs> yeah, let's do that right now. Let's get better. <laughs> um, yeah. So, part three of virtual machines v- versus containers revisited.
2: Yeah. What do you think, Chris? What are we going to do in part three? Right. Yeah. So, um, in the first two first two episodes, we we kind of went deep into virtual machines, really understanding exactly what they are um, and how they work, and, and what the the um, what the what a hypervisor is. Um, what it how it's really instrumental in, in allowing virtual machines to to actually exist and, and how that works. And so we so we've got a really good understanding now of what a virtual machine is. Yes. Um and it's and it's virtualizing the entire machine. Um it's running a full copy of your operating system along with a virtual copy of the hardware. And yes. it is that that VM is, is simulating enough hardware to allow whatever guest OS you're running on there to be to, to run unmodified and to be run in isolation. Right? So Unless you're doing paravirtualization. See I've learned something. <laughs> right. But even with, with paravirtualization, it's still it's still isolated. It's just now it's making those calls to uh, to access the the kernel yep. via via software. Um, as opposed yep. to via hardware. So great discussions there. I think you know. Hopefully, everyone now has a really good understanding of what a virtual machine is. And so, obviously, this series is virtual machines versus containers. Now it's time to talk about containers, um, and we can dive deep into into those and understand exactly. You know, okay, what well, what is a container? And then follow that up with. Okay, now how do these compare? Right, and so now, right. by the end of this, we should have a really good fundamental understanding and be able to talk about virtual machines, containers, and when to use what, which, when to use either one of those, the advantages of them, maybe disadvantages of them, and and whatnot.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, you know, this should be useful for your actual work, but it should also be useful for when you get in an argument with your, you know, you're a software developer and you get in an argument with the architect on your team. And you can just, you can just be like, I know what I'm talking about here. I'm, I'm, I win this one. <laughs> right. <laughs> I used to. I'm just thinking about myself because I used to love doing that. I used to love like practicing my arguing, arguing over software details and, and technology skills against the the people that were better and more experienced on the team, and like coming away with a win in one of those arguments was like, oh, that was the best best feeling. Were you on the debate team in college? (laughs) No, no. In fact, I I think I studied debate or I, I tried to learn about debate in junior high and I studied and studied and studied. And then we had our debate that was in front of people and there was a camera and it was the one and only time in my life that I stood and it was my turn to stand up. And I had five minutes to say something and I didn't say anything. And my face just turned red and I just stood there. And I was—it was the most embarrassing thing that has ever happened. And like, I think it's like driven me to like be a public, more of a public speaker since then. So there you go—a little personal story for you.
2: Okay, there you go.
1: <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I also love debating with the more experienced people on the team, and and now you know I can debate with you.
2: And absolutely. So after after this series, should definitely be able to go deep into the debate on. Um, when someone says that uh, containers are just lighter weight VMs, yes, like well, what, well, what do you mean by that? What does lightweight mean, right? <laughs> um, and so, be able to go as deep as you want on that. So, with that one, we um, just talk about again. There's two two broad types of virtualization. The full virtualization. That's what again you're virtualizing everything, the um, including the hardware. That's what we're calling virtual machines then you have operating system level virtualization and and that's really containers. And so that's the kind of the first thing to take away here is what's the surface area of the virtualization? And so with containers it's happening at the operating system level. And perhaps, you know, so one of the most important things to keep in mind here is that all the resources of that computer are now being partitioned via the host kernel and all containers running on that host, they're sharing the same single kernel with each other and the host.
0: hmm Okay,
2: so this is different with virtual machines. Virtual machines, there are multiple OSs and they each have their own kernel, right? Yes. With containers, they don't have an op- they, they they don't have their own kernels. They're they're getting that from the host machine. So there's a single kernel on that host machine. And everyone is sharing that. I
1: think the part that was a mouthful that you said is when you said that they are sharing the host kernel with themselves and the host. It was like, wait, what does the host need? Oh, yeah, it's an operating system. It's got to do itself, right? So Mm -hmm. it's doing itself, and it's doing all the
2: containers, right? Yeah. So again, and and so containers, you can run containers on bare metal. Um, You can also run them inside of a VM, right? But again, whatever. Whatever it is that you're running on, whether it's bare metal and you just installed Linux on a on a bare metal machine, and now your containers are running on top of that, you have that single Linux kernel for the bare metal machine, and then also any containers you run on that machine, they're going to be leveraging that same kernel. And the same same applies if you're running inside of a virtual uh, machine as well. So the the kernel inside the virtual machine is being shared amongst the host, the the actual the host as well as the containers that are running inside that VM.
1: And maybe some Mac users might be saying, wait, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. I had to install a VM in order to be able to run my, you know, my containers when I initially did them. And that would have been because initially before, uh, a couple of years ago, there wasn't a native, uh, there was a native support for Docker in Mac. And I think there is now. You don't have to run a separate VM
2: on a Mac. In order to run containers, you can just run them. You're still running um, VM. It's just now it's provided by Docker. Um, So it's 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 using Alpine. So there
1: still isn't native support for containers in macOS. You have to have a a VM running. So this is
2: this is a really really um, good point, good subtle point. um, In that because your containers are sharing the same kernel, right? It means that. Ooh, I think I know where you're going. Right. It means. It's all the same operating system. Right. So, yeah, so it means that if you're same. gonna be running a Linux container, it's gotta be running on top of a Linux kernel. Right. So Mac OS is not a Linux kernel. Right. Right? So, right? so just by virtue of that fact alone, that means that you now have to have some way of providing a Linux kernel, which really the only way is is a VM. Right? So under the covers, that's what's happening, is that Docker is running Um, inside of VM, right? And this is the reason why you can't run Windows containers on a Linux machine, right? Right, Um, Because again, Windows containers are going to need a Windows kernel. Well, there's no kernel there um, on that Linux machine. Yes. And so... The same thing goes for you know vice versa, right? So Linux containers can only run on Linux. We've got some some because Linux containers are so ubiquitous, the various platforms have have accommodated them, right? With these virtual machines. So we talked about how on Mac with Docker for Mac, it's setting up that VM for you um, on Windows with um, Hyper V. They have support for spinning up a Linux VM. So, that you can run your Linux containers on Windows platform. And it it feels like it just works, right? But again, underneath the covers, they're running inside of a virtual machine.
1: Yeah, it's like, have you ever said something that's so obvious, but not until after you say it, is it like, oh my God, that is obvious? And it is. Now, you know, we're talking about it and we're getting to the details of what these things are. The containers require the kernel to be of the same. Flavor of OS that they are, they they use it, so they need it to be the same. So yeah, yeah, of course, of course you can't run Linux containers on a Windows machine without a VM. Yeah, obviously.
2: Yep. Yeah. Yes, I know it is. It, it, it's it's one of those things that it's you say it, it's totally obvious, but for whatever reason, it's not really. Intuitive. And I think this kind of goes to the reason why we're even talking about this in this this series mm-hmm. of, you know, mm-hmm. what are VMs and, and containers and how do they compare? And yes. you know, do you really understand what a container is? And like this is a fundamental thing of a container, but it's not really called out explicitly. Like when you when you learn about it, right? I know. It should be like the
1: it should be like on the Docker homepage. It should be like a container is a program that runs on your operating system. Like that should be the very first thing it says. Like, you know, instead of like whatever it does say, something about, I, I don't know. The last time I was on there was at least 18 months ago. And I, I don't really remember it being super helpful. Mm-hmm. It was just like, kind of, here's a bunch of links to go download a bunch of programs, more or less. And that, And that Docker was taking over the world. I think it also said that.
2: <laughs> sure yeah and you know part of this might be the fact that like at the end of the day containers are not too terribly magical and they're not mm-hmm. really too terribly interesting yes yes and if you actually describe them accurately for what it is that they are then it takes away the magic and mystery of them and perhaps even like the um the marketability cachet. Right? yeah absolutely Yeah. Ooh, marketability. yeah. Right? so um and and that may be one of the reasons for 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 doing this right but like we're gonna we're gonna break it down today this is containers one one or just the fundamental like this is what a container is and and kind of pull back some of that mystery we're gonna find out that there's there's not a lot going on um with a container it's not as um it's definitely a, with a vM there's a lot more going on um, with containers it's it's much more minimal okay so what's next so you know, at the end of the day, um, a container is a process um, that is just being run on on its host. Of course, I mean, we these things are virtual, right? We have, we've talked about how they have isolation. You can run these 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 containers are these we've talked about before how they're like these hermetically sealed bubbles that right you know ideally nothing else can see inside them unless that you want to poke holes in that bubble. Um, so there's that isolation. So you know how how is this achieved? And it, and it's really based upon um, some of the the virtualization, the isolation, and some resource management mechanisms that are provided by the the kernel, um, the operating system kernel, um, and particularly you know we'll talk about in the Linux world. Um, and there's two main two main technologies there that really have enabled containers, and that is namespaces and cgroups. And so we'll um, we will dive dive into that a bit more and just understand how they work but maybe as a kind of an example of just kind of like driving home the point of like what a container is so again these are processes they are using the, they're using the same um kernel that's on the host they're sharing that that OS kernel you know one of the things that I think we we think about with containers is like oh i'm running like this entire virtual Machine. I mean, it feels like a virtual machine, right? It's like I feels like it's got an operating system and it's got applications in it, right?
1: Yeah, that's you can log into it SSH mm-hmm. into it.
2: Like it feels like a full computer, right? But again, um, it's not. I mean, really, all it is 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 it's this process where you can copy files into it, and those files get basically mounted um, and this process starts um, and it mounts that file system and that's all it can see. And so again, it's it's using whatever kernel is, is already on that host. That's what it's using. And now this, these are the files that it can see. And so with a Docker file, like what we're doing, right? We're just adding files. Like we have Docker add command and we have Docker copy. And we're, we're basically just adding files and so you're you're building up that file system that that process can see okay and you know we kind of think along the lines like oh we're you know we're we have all these various docker images out there and we can have all these different os's like red hat or centos or suse or debian or ubuntu right and we think oh these are like operating systems and but if you think that they are really not right it's just they're all the same core OS, right? They're all Linux. They're all the Linux kernel, mm-hmm. and really they just differ with the apps and files that are included in those distributions. Okay. And so, so again, just think of those containers as like really they're just processes. They they ha- they have a file system, um, a collection of files that they can see, and that's really what you're doing when you're when you're creating your Docker files. Um, when you're building up these images, is you're just giving them, here's the files um, that's going to be available to you, type thing.
1: Well, and that kind of makes sense from a Linux perspective because that really is what Linux is anyway, right? Everything is a file already. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, processes are files. Uh, the, your whole configuration of your operating system is files inside Etsy. It's just files, 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 all the way down. So it makes sense then that you could say. Oh, here's a collection of files that is going to behave like Ubuntu. And I'm going to call, you know, I'm going to zip it up and call it an image and hand it over to my operating system. And it's going to mount those somewhere and then do the stuff in them, do what they do, use them as the basis of executing a process. It kind of makes an intuitive sense to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean, there are, there is some, um, some of the, uh, the kernel initialization. The kernel has to be loaded, right? There's device drivers mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. has to happen, right? So it's yep. it's not so like when you flip on a a machine that's that's running Linux or any other operating system, right? There's a bunch of stuff that happens to begin with, and then once it once it initializes and up, and now it's reading from now it's in its its normal state, if you will, right? And it's reading from the file system. So just think with containers like all that. The kernel's been loaded already. All that stuff's already happened, right? And now it's just going against the the file system. So, so just keep that in mind as we go through and and talk about some of these 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 particular technologies, namespaces, and C groups, and and hopefully it'll it'll really make this 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 crystal clear. Cool, cool. Before we do that though, maybe just really talk quickly about container history, because as I was going through this and just looking through it, it's really kind of interesting to understand like how containers came to be and how long they've they've been around um as well so um and it, it helps kind of understand like again what is a container and 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 how we got here so really you know kind of going back to 2000 and the year 2000 freebsd um they had a feature called jails this was a way of isolating processes running on freebsd and it was really based, um, you know, a core part of it was based on the the chroot operation. And so, chroot basically is change root, right? And so, what it says is, it says for this particular process, your root, so slash, is no is going to be some other place on the file system, right? So uh-huh. now, it, so it, it's a form of of, of name spacing, right? Of, of isolation. So if you want this process to think that like slash user slash John is the root, then you just use this 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 um kernel command charoot um to say okay that's my that's my new root right. And if I do that, then inside
1: slash user slash John, there better be a slash etc, a slash bin, a slash bar, a slash mount,
2: like all that stuff has to be there. Right. If, if you're going to be a container, more. if you're going to be a container, right? Like I mean, you don't have. Mm-hmm. I mean th- this. When it first, you know, when this first came out, jails like I mean, it wasn't necessarily like, oh, we're going to be running an entire copy of an operating system inside of it, type thing. Um, it could be just like we just want we don't want we don't want we just want the isolation, right? We don't want to, it to see any other files um, outside of it. So it's kind of more of a security thing, right?
1: Yeah. So it's like, don't let me go dot dot all the way back into the real mm-hmm. stuff, mm-hmm. right? CD yep. slash or CD space dot dot all the way back into other people's stuff, right? Right. Cool. Cool. And and I know for sure that uh, it seems like Apple made big use of this for iOS and even in Mac, just to kind of separate processes and make them safer from
2: each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a um, I mean, it's a pretty natural concept, right? Of this 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 mm-hmm. this, this idea of isolating something, um, especially from a security standpoint, right? Yeah. So so that was kind of like the first containers, if you will, right? So FreeSB, this is in, again, year 2000. So this is almost 20 years ago. And and again, it's based on that core, that that true operation, it added additional capabilities on top of that so that um, uh, it allowed for virtualization of not only the file system, but also the set of users and the networking subsystem. Then you also had like a configuration file for this, which looked really, really similar to um, a lot of other configura- configuration files that we we work with now. So when I was looking at it, it looked a lot like an Nginx configuration file, right? Because it has things like, right. what do you want the hostname to be, and its IP address, and you know, what command is going to be run, what is the path of the executable that's going to be running inside that jail. Right, and... I don't know.
1: I'm also thinking about just some famous celeb devs like uh Chris Nova and Jesse Frazel. I've seen them make inside jokes about containers are just true. Mm-hmm. Like or why don't we just go back to using true mm-hmm. when they're dealing with like Kubernetes headaches? Right. Um and now we can all get those jokes. Yep, there you go.
2: <laughs> so that so that that's free VSD jails. Um you know one of, it is free BSD, though, right? So that kind of limited its, its appeal mm. and its adoption. So um, that's one of the reasons why we're not talking about jails today instead of containers. In 2008, there were um, improvements to the Linux kernel to provide isolation and virtualization and, and resource management capabilities. And so this gave rise to uh, LXC containers. Um, so this is eight years after FreeBSD jails. Um, we're still about 11 years ago now um, that LX, yeah. LXC containers came on. But these are actually full-blown containers. Um, so they they support things like namespacing, security um, capabilities like App Armor and, and Cell Linux profiles, SecComp policies. It takes advantage of Chroot, um for file system virtualization, and um, it introduced Cgroups, which we're going to talk about as well. So I think kind of like, again, the the real maybe eye-opener here is that this was the really the start of containers, um, and it was built into Linux. And so this is 2008. You wouldn't happen to know anybody that was making use of those, do you? I do. Um, so Docker, actually, when Docker first launched. Uh-huh. They were using LXC as the what 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 was the runtime for the containers? So Docker the early versions of Docker up through version 0.9, which was March of 2014, Docker was using LXC. It was only in version 0.9 that they then came up with an alternative to LXC. Huh, interesting. I couldn't have asked a better question. This this show is scripted. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it it's 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 just like I said. It's it's very interesting to see like where it came from. And and the thing that's that was really interesting to me is that just LXC containers, you know, again have been around for a long time. They're still around today. Like they're still it's still a healthy, robust system.
1: I'm just imagining like you know super super Linux computer programmer geek nerds around 2008 going. Oh, I'm going to make this cool thing. Making it and kind of putting it out there and being like, huh, nobody cares about this cool thing I made. Yeah, And then the Docker
2: people are kind of picking it up and figuring out how to market it. Yeah, a little bit of that. Something else maybe to keep in mind is that LXC, it's all C code. Mm. So it's very, very tight and fast. And so there are um, other environments, especially more like I think embedded environments um, and some... uh, just more constrained environments that you'll like lxc containers are really like the only option um and docker, okay. docker's not a great option perhaps, or it, it, it's getting better, but um that's one of the big differences between these two is that lxc is implemented in c versus docker is now written in go um so interesting, yeah, but this is one of the things I was looking as as I was doing this this preparation, just kind of looking as like well lxc containers are like this is like basically everything that that what we think of as Docker containers. Like, what's really the difference here? At the end of the day, it's using the like really the same op the, the same kernel features right. to build these things. It's just they're implemented two different ways. Huh? Yeah. Very cool. So that's LXC containers again. They they rolled out in two thousand eight and have um, that's when they landed in the um, the Linux kernel mainline, and they uh, continue. Today, as a as a, again as, as a robust project, Docker containers. Um, two two thousand fourteen is when um, again they, up until that point they were using LXC as their container um, technology. They switched over to something uh, their own implementation that was called Libcontainer. That eventually became the core of RunC, which we'll talk about next time as for container runtimes. And then Docker dropped LXC support in version 1.10, which was in February of 2016. Interesting. Okay.
0: Just a sec. There's something important you need to do. You must have noticed that MobyCast is ad-free, but Chris and John need your help to make this work for everyone. Please help the MobyCast team by giving us five stars on iTunes, writing positive reviews, and telling your colleagues, friends, neighbors, children, and pets about the show. Go ahead and do it now. Great. I promise not to ask you to do that again.
2: So, um, maybe now it's time. It's a good time just to dive into the container technology. And so we. Yes, what we've all been waiting for. (laughs) Yeah. So we said, you know, so containers are just processes, right? I mean, they're literally just like you're just creating a process on on your on your operating system. So what makes them special, right? Like what makes it a container? And so really, it goes into these these isolation the the virtualization and the resource management capabilities. And it really comes from two, two main things namespaces and control groups or C groups.
1: To me, namespace is just a word that computer people throw around to seem like they're really hardcore. Yeah. Like everything has namespaces. <laughs> yeah. It's like. If you can't think of a better name for it, for your way of kind of chopping things up, let's call it a namespace. Mm -hmm. But let's find out what, okay, so we've talked about namespaces in a lot of other um, contexts. I'm curious to see what namespaces are in terms of containers. Right. Yeah, and so
2: namespace, this is actually the term in, it's, The actual kernel. Well, it's the kernel feature, right? It's actually called Linux namespaces. Like this is what the Linux folks called it, right? So it's not a it's not a kind of an arbitrary term. It's it's actually it's this is the feature in the kernel. It's 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 and again, it's known as Linux namespaces. So what namespaces do, Linux namespaces do is it restricts what you can see. Okay. And so it's virtualizing system resources like the file system or networking, and it makes it appear to processes that are now within that namespace that they have their own isolated instance of that, right? So it is definitely, this is all about isolation um, and restricting what you can see, which is a big part of Providing that that hermetically sealed bottle bubble, if you will, for for containers. Do you think that it
1: lets you kind of restrict anything and everything? Like you know, you mentioned networking and file system. Would it also enable you know restrictions on memory, restrictions on devices, restrictions on, um, gosh, all the other
2: things? Uh, so the answer to that is is yes and no. So yes, there's other things that you can. Provide isolation on via Linux namespaces. So, in particular, there's seven things um, that Linux namespace provide that Linux namespaces provides for. So, let's just go through them quickly. So, one is IPC. So, the IPC namespace. Um, so, that's interprocess communications. So, this is like the um, more of the, the low level, mm-hmm. um, again, IPC mechanisms inside it, but it's, it's providing namespace isolation for that. So that's one thing you can you can isolate. Another one is the network. Um, so all your network devices and stacks and ports and whatnot, that can be isolated in namespace. Mounts, so all mount, mount points, yep. those could be isolated. Makes sense. Process IDs, Ooh. those could be um, isolated in their own namespace. Users um, and groups. Um, Those can be isolated in namespace. Super cool. The uh, UTS, which is the Unix timesharing system, which for for all practical purposes, it's really about um, isolating the host name and the NIS domain name. Um, And then we also can isolate C groups um, as well, um, because we'll talk about C groups a little bit later, but C groups at the end of the day get exposed as... Files, um, as you alluded to earlier, how everything sure. in Linux is a file, right? So, so that's that's how C groups are um, are implemented or seen. So, there's isolation, namespacing for that as well. So, those are the standard namespace um, categories that Linux Linux gives us, um, and so those are all available. Cool. Another thing to consider is that process. So you, when you, when you launch in a process, you can set up these namespaces for it, mm-hmm. and any processes that are then instantiated by that process, so the children, yep, are going to inherit from that parent, yep. So everything that that thing does, right, it's all going to be kept in the same isolation containment. So just to make sure I understand,
1: if when you're making a namespace, you say of these seven things, here's the thing. This here's the the sub parts that this namespace is allowed access to sometimes maybe all of it sometimes maybe sub some parts of it then you give that namespace a name you could call it john and then when you start a process you're going to say hey this process i want you to
2: go inside namespace john yeah yeah absolutely so in, in you're you can pick and choose right so you don't have to it's not like it's it's all or nothing or in it or if you don't choose to set up like a The PID namespace that now you don't have access to that. So if you all you want to do is virtualize the mount points, then you can just set up a namespace for that, and that's what that's what will be. Everything else will be like. So default
1: access would be the default access for any process.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, you can think about it, right? Everything has a name. Like you you have the root namespace, Mm -hmm. and then it all flows down to there, right? So you can kind of just think Mm -hmm. of it as a as a as a tree. And so you're always inheriting from your parent, unless you know, your parents overriding that. Easy peasy. Yeah. Yes, I like it. Yeah. Um. Something else to keep in mind is that namespaces. It's a syscall interface, right? So it's basically that's the that's the fundamental interface between an app and the Linux kernel. So just yes. making these these Linux kernel calls to create. Um, you know set up and enter these namespaces for, for processes. You
1: know, I think that we've never really talked about syscall on MobyCast before. And we have talked about it with some of the members of our team and it's a really straightforward thing. Uh, but we don't have time to get into it today. So maybe we can come back and talk about that at some other point because it's pretty interesting.
2: Sure. So that is namespaces. So that again, that's a it's one of the the big key things that that enable containers is just that isolation of these resources and so these containers, when you're in a container, it's using these namespaces so that they all they see is the network, the mount points, the processes that are relevant to them that, you, that is being set up by the runtime that's hosting that container. Mm-hmm. They restrict what you can see, underline C. Yes, exactly. And so the other part is, is control groups, um, or more typically you'll hear C groups. And so C groups, these restrict what you can do as a process, right? And so this is the, you know, before you asked about like, well, about memory, this is how you, this is how you limit memory um, or CPU resources for a particular container or process, right? So this C groups allow containers to share the available hardware resources and optionally enforce limits and constraints. Okay. And so we talked a little bit about this, where the creating, modifying, and using C groups, it's all done through a virtual file system. And just like with namespaces, processes are inheriting from their parent. Yep. So if, if a particular process belongs to a particular C group, then any children it spawns off will be part of that C group as well. Yep. Right. And so some of the common um, C group categories uh, would be things like memory, CPU, and CPU cores. Uh, devices, I/O, and processes. So I'm kind of curious about this.
1: You know, I'm just imagining you make in a C group, and you want to say that uh, this process can have access. You know, maybe the machine has a terabyte of memory, and you want to give the process access to four gigs. Would you have to say the machi- You know, this process can ac- have access to this address space through this address space, or would it be like any four gigs you can find? Set aside for this process and let the operating system figure out the address space.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the OS is gonna is gonna figure out like the addressing and where that belongs, right? So this this the C group is just saying like, hey, I this is how much memory I need. This is how much you should allocate to me, and that's what I want, right? Because I think when when that process starts up, right, like this is just part of just the the operating system itself, like instantiating, you know, starting this process, like, okay, how much memory does it get? Um, and then, you know, how much CPU is it gonna is it gonna get? Like those are all just characteristics of that process that the kernel has to manage.
1: Right. And then I think of the of these categories, devices make sense. Like there's a list of devices, here's some you can access, here's some you can't. Um IO makes sense, like you can get an IO from the keyboard or you can send IO out to, you know, this the screen or whatever that makes sense to me processes also make sense. There's a list of processes and some of them have children and you know, you can have access to these ones, but not these ones. That makes sense to me. But the one that does not make sense to me is CPU. And I, I feel like we've, we kind of danced around this in previous episodes around virtual machines and, and um, CPU scheduling, like, the operating system has to say when a process gets to run its instructions and when it has to stop running its instructions and on that we decided that interrupts make a lot of sense like okay the interrupt comes along and the cpu is like all right you're out you know you don't get to run any more instructions but it didn't you know we weren't sure like the the magic around scheduling like, is it a round robin? Everyone gets a little bit of time, and then it's the next process's turn. Does this have anything to do with that? Like, what what mm-hmm. are we saying when we say you know we're restricting you to some amount of CPU? Right. Are we? Is it a priority number? What, what is it? Yeah.
2: So remember, so C groups, it's restricting what you can do from the from the aspect of specifying what limits and constraints you have against those resources. So it's not whether or not you can see it. Yeah. It's it's what how much of it you get, right? So it's like for processes, it's not what processes you can see, right? That's done through namespacing. uh uh-huh. Instead it's like maybe you're only allowed to create a maximum of twenty processes. Okay. Right? That's your limit. You can't have more than twenty processes running inside of your container. Uh, right? That okay. would be what you'd use Seekers for. Okay. Right? But the process that you see that's done by the namespace.
1: Yep, yep, okay. So, everything there's a big part of what I just said that Chris is correcting me on, so listeners, it's not about what you can see, it's about what you can do. But I still have my question about what the what you can do part means for a CPU.
2: Yeah, so 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 memory is really straightforward, right? Cuz the when the operating system is instantiating a process and it can say, okay, I'm going to dedicate this this is how much memory this thing gets. Yep. And so that's pretty pretty crystal clear. With CPU and uh, CPU cores, um, some of that is, is is a little bit more fungible, right? So CPU cores is pretty straightforward. You can say, yeah, like, "Hey, you only like get one core, cores, right? you only get to yeah, use two, right. or whatever." Yeah. Um, but for CPU, for for um, CPU utilization, it's more along the lines of like um, CPU shares, right? So you can say this is the amount of CPU shares this should get, and really, what it is, it, it's not a hard constraint. It is something that is. um, It's more of a target to achieve, right? So, what is a CPU share? This is really we we see this in practice, like with container orchestration systems, uh, like Uh like ECS, right? So, when we're we're creating ECS tasks, we say how much CPU and memory they get, right? Memory is is a hard limit, Um, and then CPU is is more of a um, more of a watermark, so. If there's available CPU on that host, then containers can burst above whatever their shares are set to. Uh-huh. But it's a way of allocating how much.
1: It's totally. This is making sense, right? So it's like you just you you just divide up the all the instructions per second into shares. So maybe if you can do a billion instructions per second, if you divide that into a thousand
2: shares, then each share is worth a million instructions right yeah i mean it, it's it's kind of it's just a way of just part of of saying like hey there's a there's a finite amount of power that the of cpu power that's here what percentage of it do i expect my process to use of that but
1: is a cpu share like do you get to find out how many cpu shares there are is there like a, a command you can do to say hey how many cpu shares do are there and I, and then I want to use like three of them, or I, I don't even know what a normal number is. Is it three? Is it three thousand? Is it three hundred
2: thousand?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I think it, it's it's one of those things. that's a bit arbitrary, and it's up to uh-huh. whatever platform you're running on. Okay. For for so for this particular point, like C, like the CPU shares setting in C groups, I'm not sure if the Linux kernel actually does anything with this and enforces it or if it's more a way of tracking um and basically keeping that metadata of what should be there. Ooh. Um so like like an example of this again is like ECS. You know, ECS is doing is using the CPU shares on your task to kind of decide whether or not it should schedule something on a particular machine, right? So it's going to see like here's these I so and in, and in, in with ECS they do come up with the number, right? So for them, every CPU is is 1024 shares. It, it, it's it's okay. divided up into 1024, right? So for every core that you have on that EC2, there's, there's 1,024 CPU units. And so you can, in your task, you say how many units I'm taking up. And so if you have a task that says, I'm going to use 512, you can only spin up two of those tasks on that EC2 if there's only one core on that. So if it's like a T2 micro or something like that, There's only one virtual core on that, so you can only ever have it'll only ever schedule two tasks on that because you basically said I'm going to use up all the CPU between these two tasks, right? Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you,
1: I was just imagining like if you only have two containers on there and you've each given them one, it's probably going to just let them use a you know use a lot of CPU just to do their work because there aren't there aren't any more containers on there, so it's
2: probably smart enough to know right that's not to like, and that's why there's not a hard constraint right so it's just yeah. it's kind of more for just allocation and scheduling and and um kind of like huh. bookkeeping than it is for like this hard limit
1: yeah that's thing. a this is a fascinating topic and it's one i feel like you know it, it's probably the most hardcore part of all of this um and the, you know it's not even all that important really at the end of the day for your job for most of our jobs but it, it is fascinating how How CPUs sort of divide themselves up, and how you tell the CPU what what part of it you want, and and you know when your instructions are going to get run versus when some other instructions are going to get run, and you know what kinds of stuff create noisy neighbor issues, like all that is pretty fascinating to me for some reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure it's you know in the if you were to go look at the code, I bet there would be quite a bit of code in that area of you know of. Um, container implementation and inside the kernel itself, and in, in like CPU scheduling and
0: mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah I would funny. imagine that
1: that's that's probably one of the more opaque pieces of the kernel.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's the hardcore. I mean. Yeah, hardcore. You know, that's the, that's what makes the kernel the kernel, right? <laughs> right. It's between yeah. that and managing memory, um, and yeah. some you know devices and whatnot. I mean, that's that's the the crux of it. So. So that is namespaces and cgroups. Those are the two main technologies, really, along with Chroot, um, that is really allows for containers to, to, it's really what containers are, right? So it's just they are these, these normal processes, but they have been namespaced into isolation for those seven different possible types of namespaces. And then they have cgroups that limit um, or constrain what resources they can, how much of the resources they can't use, right? And that allows for things like just making sure that we don't have um, containers that take up too much too much, too much, much more resources than they really should, right? And it allows for sharing and, and basically divvying up the, the resources of that machine. Cool.
1: And I think that it makes total sense to me that there would be one namespace per process, but could there be more than one C group per process? Or is it also just one? Like, I'm going to run a process. I want it to be in this namespace and and also in these three C groups
2: or just this C group? So I don't think there's anything stopping you a process from belonging to more than one C group. The way so we talked about like C groups, the way that you create, modify, use these things is it's through a virtual file system. And so your C groups are going to be mounted somewhere on your file system again as this virtual file system. And there are going to be basically just directories set up for these C groups. And so if you want to add a process to a particular C group, it's literally just navigating to that folder for that particular C group. Um, there's going to be a file there called like cgroup.prox. And you just do something like echo pid and add that to the end of that file. Um, and now that, that process is now part of that C group. Okay. So you can... You can, again, do this for multiple ones. And I, at the end of the day, I mean, maybe it, it's, it's got to do something with, um, you know, how do you handle conflicts and overriding if it's um, specifying conflicting settings, if you will, with it. But um, something to, to do a little bit more research on as well.
1: Cool. Th- I was just wondering, so we have one last little p- part that we want to get to we've We're hit about fifty minutes right now, but I think it's so interesting and it won't really fit on next week. so do you think you could get through the the pseudo
2: code for creating a container in like three minutes? yeah absolutely so th- this is kind of born of um one of the talks I went to at Dockercon a couple years back was basically a talk on you know namespaces and c groups and you know how these relate to containers, and um, as part of that, the speaker went through and did a, a demo of like let's go and basically do some some of these these calls to create a you know a, a container if you will, and kind of again it takes away a lot of the mystery to this, and so mm-hmm. so let's do that right. Well, I'm just going to walk you through like what that process looks like, just to kind of like again hopefully shed some light on like there's not a lot of not a lot not a lot going on here um, at the end of the day, so. So, so to, to create our container, if you will, like first we need a, a root file system, and so for this we can kind of like cheat a little bit, make it really easy. And what we'll do is we can just spin up Docker with the BusyBox image, right? So that's kind of like just the a base OS image, the BusyBox Busy BusyBox busy image. So we can we can create that, um, uh, launch a container running that that image, um, and then we can use the Docker export command to export out that file system okay. onto our host, right? Yeah. So we're just we're just doing that and we can, you know, tar it up. And so now we have we now have this file, a root file system that we need for our container. And it's got slash SC, slash bar, right, all right. that good yep. stuff. Yep. So we have that. So then the next part is now we're gonna do some some system calls, right? To set up our namespaces. So the the first thing we need to do is we're gonna have a, a launcher program. And what it's going to do is it's going to be the one that's responsible for setting up the namespaces. So we'll create a namespace um, for, like, let's say, um, UTS to give us our our new host name. We'll set up a namespace for PIDs so that um, obviously the only processes that we can see are the processes inside our container. Um, And then we'll also do um, networking as well and mount points. This is really easy to do like in a language like Go. Um, Go gives you... Um, access to the to syscalls and so it's it's literally you know you can just basically say like set up a command object and go um, you're you can set it to run yourself Um, and so a shortcut to that is slash proc slash self slash exe the whole so we we talk everything's a file in linux and we talked about the virtual file system for cgroups there's also a virtual file system for processes um, and it's at slash proc Mm -hmm. and so if the the currently running process is slash proc slash self. Yep. And then slash exe is what executables actually is, is being run, right? So, so you can set set up your command to, to run yourself again. You can make the syscall um, to set up your new namespaces for UTS and PID and mounts. And then you run again, right? So now when that now when you actually execute that, run it. You got a new process that just got launched. It's now in this new namespace, mm-hmm. and now what you want to do is now set up your actual container executable, right? So you're gonna do the you're gonna set up another command. This time you're gonna set the executable to be whatever you want your container command to be. You can make some syscalls to set your host name. Um, so set my host name to foobar. Um, I can do a um, charoot. To my root file system that I exported from BusyBox to now point to that, yep. I can do a change dir um, to make sure that I'm there at the root. I can mount some some mounts um, mount points if I want, um, and then I go ahead and just run that. That it for all intents and purposes that is now a container, right? So I've got my name spacing, um, I've got my new file system. It's been rooted, and I can now go into that. And I'm not gonna be able to see anything else outside of that, the file system. It's only what's what's inside of there. After you can also now if we want to, we can set constraints with C groups, right? So we we can find out what our PID is, um and we can set up something like CPU shares or set the you know max processes um to be twenty so that it can't kick off more right. than twenty processes. Right. So
1: I think that of those three steps, that second one where you were um Setting up your your child namespace and you talked about Go. That one for me was a little opaque, and I think for our listeners too, it was probably a little tough. And I think that it's probably because of some of the, you know, additional syscall stuff that you threw out there just on the fly. And I'm just thinking that in order to in order to get Everybody over that hump, maybe during the next episode we could add uh, talking about syscalls a little bit more, talking about forking processes, just talking about a few of those Linux fundamentals that I know our team didn't didn't have at, at you know ready at hand when we talked about them at Kelsus camp last year or earlier this year. Mm-hmm. So I think that our audience would benefit from that. Um, and then we could, you know, redo this pseudocode example again next week with that in mind, along with the other stuff that we want to talk about next week. Does that make sense? Sounds good, yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, and then maybe just to kind of wrap this up and drive home that, again, just containers are just processes. Um, if you're on that host, we talked about how, how proc is exposed as a virtual file system. Um, so you're on that host, and you can cd to slash proc, and you can go to the pid for that particular container that's running. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have access, right, if you have pseudo-access, there's going to be a directory and um, there's going to be a file in there called environ, right? And so this is basically this contains all the environment variables being used by that. And so you just cat that file, um, you can see all the environment variables that's that are defined and inside that container. Right. Right. So that's sometimes you know we'll, so we'll hear about things like container leakage. Yes. And this is where some of that stuff comes into. So again, you have to have like root access in order to see that um, to be able to cat that file. But you know it's just these are just normal processes, and it's just standard Linux way of 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 managing processes and all the information that it' exposes not hopefully that's taken away some of the the mystery of containers and and how they work.
1: yeah, it definitely helps i i I think after today, I totally understand namespaces. I totally get the idea of groups. I was a little mystified around the pseudocode code for creating a container, so I think we can clean that up next week. And then move on and talk about Container D and Run C. Sounds good. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Chris. Yep. That was super useful.
2: All right. Thanks, Don.
1: Yep. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.
0: Nobody listens to podcast outros. Why are you still here? Oh, that's right. It's the outro song. Come talk to us at mobicast.fm or on Reddit at r slash mobicast.